I'm Chris Gilson, the managing editor of the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. So we're back for another extra inning. This time, I'm in conversation with Professor Kathleen Jemison, the Elizabeth Ware Packard Professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania and Director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center. Professor Jemison joined the U.S. Center on the 27th of February, 2020, for the event Russian Hackers, Trolls, and Hashtag Democracy RIP as part of our Phelan Family Lecture Series. Ahead of the event, Professor Jemison and I talked about the impact of Russian interference on Donald Trump's election, the techniques used to influence voters in 2016, and what we should be thinking about and even worried about in the lead-up to the 2020 election. So my first question is, Donald Trump could be said to have won the 2016 election by gaining just under 80,000 votes in, in three key states. So did Russian interference matter in Trump's election victory? It probably did. We can't say with certainty because we didn't have the social science in the field to be examining what was happening in those states in the last days of the election. But what we can say is that Hillary Clinton dropped in the national vote totals at a statistically significant level during the October period in which the hacked content was dominating our news streams and was being used very effectively by the Trump campaign. And we can say as well that she dropped again at a statistically significant level during the Comey reopened investigation. And I argue in the book that that investigation may have become publicly, or public may have become aware of it because there was Russian disinformation at the backdrop that Comey feared that if released might discredit the Justice Department. Thank you. And so what sorts of techniques were used to push voters towards Trump in 2016? And, and how did the U.S. Uh, press and media fit into, into those techniques? Let me start by indicating two things that we know from our past studies of election, because the book Cyber War, How Russian Trolls and Hackers Helped Elect a President scaffolds its inferences on the past election studies and assumes that if the effects we saw in past elections are applicable to this one, then the same kinds of stimuli in this election would have produced comparable effects. And so what we know from past elections specifically from work that we did at the Annenberg Public Policy Center, published in a Cambridge University Press book called uh, 2000 Election and Foundations of Party Politics with Richard Johnston and Michael Hagan. What we found was that the popular vote was affected by a week of newscasts in the last week of the election, in which, remember, that was the Bush-Gore election for us in 2000, which Bush stayed off the air in news, and Gore took advantage of free news time. During that time, you had an imbalance in messaging. You had more of the messages from Gore, more total amount of time, and he was able to frame it, create the perspective for it, and set the agenda, which he set as Bush is going to shortchange Social Security. Now, Bush didn't come back in those newscasts because he'd been some past information about a DUI that he'd had, drunk driving conviction that he'd had, had come into the fore, and he didn't want to be asked about it. So we were actually able to see the effect of unrebutted Democratic information in national news. It pushed up the popular vote totals for Gore. Meantime, Gore had run short of money. He couldn't advertise at the same levels as Bush. And so in the battleground states, particularly remember Florida decided the Electoral College, Bush out-advertised Gore substantially. The message imbalance favored Bush. And he said about Social Security, I'm not going to hurt Social Security. I'm not going to shortchange it. And there was nothing that was comparable on the other side from Gore saying, 
oh, yes, you will accept that news stream. So what we were able to see, because remember back then, advertising was only in our battleground. It wasn't in our non-battleground, was a national effect on the popular vote. That was the news imbalance because Bush wasn't in the news stream at the national level. But we saw an ad effect in the battleground where Gore was not there at the same levels. And what we saw as a result was, I find it is very clear that when you have message imbalances, you shift votes on the margin. So what does that tell us? Remember how close that election was. In a close election, if you have a message imbalance, if one side gets substantially more messaging that benefits the candidate or hurts the other candidate, you can shift votes on the margin. Now, why does that matter? If the hacked content only available to our media because the Russians got it, only available to our media because Julian Assange relayed it, only used by our media because it was gullible and wasn't careful about what it was it was going to publicize, but only because that was there, you saw a message imbalance against Hillary Clinton during precisely those periods in which she's dropping in the polls. So the argument says, if you look at what we learned from that past election, it says message imbalances matter. The hacked content created a message imbalance. We see at the same time a polling change consistent with the theory. Is it reasonable to surmise that the hacking imbalance produced that change in polling? The book argues, yes, it is, because there isn't something else there that's being revealed about Hillary Clinton that would explain it. There are no other scandals. The scandals that are there, and I put that in quotation marks, scandals are being driven by hacked content. Now think for a moment about the trolls marauding in cyberspace pretending they're U.S. nationals. They created message imbalances too, but only within the accounts of those who followed. And when I looked and I did this since the publication of the first edition of the book. The second edition is coming out in summer with this new information. We now have all of the troll stream in Twitter. We have much more of it in Facebook than we had before and much more of it in Instagram, although we don't have most in either of those two channels. But what we can say is that the total amount that's there in those two places that was election-related as opposed to just building up the identity so that people would believe they were U.S. nationals who were talking to them is too small to have created a difference. Nonetheless, the troll accounts would have increased message imbalances for at least some. And hence, the message imbalance theory says that there would have been some impact there, but it's not going to have been large enough because there wasn't a large enough amount of it to have made a decisive difference. Could it have added to the total difference? Yes, but of itself, would it have accomplished that? Now, there's a second theory that comes out of what we know from the past, and this is that agenda setting is powerful. So one of the oldest findings in mass communication says that media tell us what to think about. They don't tell us what to think. They tell us what to think about. They set the agenda for us. If the hacked content is able to swing the agenda so that it's more focused on things that affect Hillary Clinton negatively, first that takes some agenda space away from other things. But it also increases the likelihood that those are considerations that are used when people are evaluating her and hence also Donald Trump as they decide for whom to vote. We know the agenda changed as a result of the hacked content. Agenda setting theory would say as a result, the considerations on which people voted would have narrowed to include those more prominently than they otherwise would have been included. Hence, there would have been an agenda setting effect as well. That would too be consistent with those changes in polling data that we saw. So how did the effect happen? The effect happened because if the research from the past is sound and message imbalances matter and agenda setting matter, then both of those things mattered. And one more finding from past research, this done by others, not done by my colleagues and by me at the Annenberg Public Policy Center, 
We know from experimental work that when some things are featured in a news agenda, people feature them more clearly when they are making their mind up about some matter. They affect the considerations. So we don't just have the agenda-setting literature, which is largely survey data, which says, here it is in the media. Oh, there it also is in the electorate. This comes before that. These things coincide across time in the same kinds of proportions. There must be an agenda-setting effect. We also see the same agenda-setting effect and that it affects the way in which you vote. So that puts in the missing piece because we know from the agenda-setting literature increases the likelihood you think about it. Well, now we also know you're more likely to consider it in your evaluation, hence your evaluation of candidates, hence your evaluation of Clinton. All of that then is consistent with what we see in the polling data. Wow. Thank you. Quick sidebar question. When we talk about sort of uh, the media in this respect, is this across all media, the, the sort of the messaging imbalance, or was it concentrated on a, on a few networks or sources? What's interesting about our current capacities, largely now because we can scan very large data sets, is we are able to answer the question across the whole social media sphere. Anything that's publicly accessible can be scanned by computers. And the MIT Harvard team that manages the media cloud has done that. So we're able to look at the headlines and what did the headlines say across time. So we're able to say, for example, that there is more citation to WikiLeaks, hence to hacked content, in the conservative media channels than there is in the moderate or the liberal media channels. But we can also say that there is substantial headline use of WikiLeaks. If you're looking at headlines for this reason, you're looking for headlines for this reason, headlines set the agenda for a story. Headlines also frame a story. So rather than looking at every mention of WikiLeaks, we looked at the headline mention of WikiLeaks on the assumption that the story is framing whatever is under it out of the perspective of the WikiLeaks hacked content. So it's not an incidental mention. In other words, it's a dominant mention. And one of the things I have in the new edition of the book is the headline data from across the major print outlets, including those that are digital, but you're reading them rather than hearing them or watching them visually, to show that, yes, there's substantial use in conservative media. And this answers your question. There's more use there, but there's also significant use in the mainstream. And to the extent that the mainstream has a substantially larger audience than some of the places that used it extensively. Fox News, conservative, used it extensively. Well, Fox News, 4 million or so people who are viewing. CBS, the lowest rated of our major mainstream networks, has substantially larger audiences, three times the audience of Fox. So when you see it being used in CBS, it's not only reaching a different audience, it's reaching a larger audience. Rush Limbaugh, extensive use, talked about it almost constantly throughout this period. And he spins it to be even more negative against Hillary Clinton than, than it would actually seem to be if you were using it in mainstream news. Nonetheless, hacked content is featured in NPR, which has about the same size audience. And in that context, it's not only reaching people who are conservative, but also people who are moderate and people who are liberal. In fact, it's more likely to reach moderates and more likely to reach liberals. And so what we see is there's more of it in conservative media, but there's significant amounts of it elsewhere. And that some of the pieces of hacked content gained substantial traction in the mainstream. So the statement that said Hillary Clinton said that she said one thing in public and another thing in private got extensive use outside the conservative ecosystem. An email that suggests that uh, a Democratic advocate who became the head of the Democratic National Committee, Donna Brazil, had given questions during the primaries to Hillary Clinton got substantial traction in the mainstream as well as in conservative media. Well, why does the first matter? The first matter is because 
it suggested that Hillary Clinton had been giving private assurances to audiences in speeches for which she was paid large amounts of money. When in fact, what you look at when you see in the actual context in which she made that statement, she was talking about a film Steven Spielberg made about Abraham Lincoln. So the use of it suggested that she was confessing to hypocrisy, the context for it, which was lost in our mainstream media and lost in our conservative media and lost in the second presidential debate, where it was quoted as you said one thing, you said that you said one thing in public, another in private. Is it okay to be two-faced? So in those contexts, it becomes a digest to say that in private, she basically indicted herself and confessed to hypocrisy. Now, the fact that that got substantial use in conservative media, important. Substantial use in mainstream media, very important, because it's a central indictment, particularly against a female candidate. Female candidates are more susceptible to charges of corruption, anything that's unethical. If they're seen to be duplicitous, it's much more dangerous. As a result, that misuse of the hack content, it's actually taken out of context in our mainstream media, as well as conservative media, stands in for a very powerful indictment of Hillary Clinton. And in the book we show, first edition of the book, Cyber War, what we show is that those who watched the second debate or the third debate where a variant of that claim is made are more likely in the presence of controls. Watch debate versus non-watching debate in the presence of controls to say Hillary Clinton says one thing in public, another in private. And that saying that she says that and believing that she says that and believing that it's true, all those things wrap up into one polling question, predicts a decreased likelihood of voting for her. So some of these things infiltrate the mainstream very powerfully. The notion that she confessed to saying one thing in public, another in private, infiltrates the second debate directly and the third debate indirectly, where another quote was taken out of context. The original quote says that she supports open trade and open borders sometime in the future. She's speaking specifically in the context of the Western Hemisphere. That's actually in the sentence. And then she goes on in the same sentence to talk about energy transfer. That's extracted, that is digested, that is inaccurately quoted in our mainstream to say that she said she stood for open trade and open borders. Now, if she said that privately in the speech that was hacked while she's saying publicly in the campaign, no, I don't support open borders and no, I don't support open trade, then that too, in essence, says she says one thing in public, another thing in private. And the problem for Hillary Clinton with that inaccurate digest is that the indictment of Donald Trump has been saying throughout the general election, she's really supporting open borders by which he means and says he means unlimited number of refugees, unlimited number of immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. So it becomes a digest for Trump of his case against Clinton, the hacked content taken out of context by our media, both liberal and, and mainstream and conservative, increases the likelihood that people believe that she actually privately said I support something that publicly she was denying saying. And Donald Trump then tweets and says on the stump, all those fact checkers, they said she doesn't support open borders. Well, look, she admitted it in private. When in fact she didn't, our media didn't keep it in context. Thank you. So were Americans more susceptible to the sort of, the sort of interference in 2016 compared to previous years and why, if they were? Humans are susceptible, period. We're susceptible, whether we're in the U.S., whether we're in Britain, we're in France, humans are susceptible. And our susceptibilities can be played on by media. So we've always had susceptibilities that politicians have capitalized on. When we moved from radio, for example, to television, you started to see advertising, paid political communication, in which 
the visuals on the screen and the audio on the screen and the print on the screen and the music on the screen would rapidly intercut. And things would appear in print on screen that when juxtaposed with what you heard on screen and what you saw on screen could create a false inference. You wouldn't be aware it was creating a false inference because they're coming in from multiple channels, multiple modes of communication. And it's very difficult when it's moving quickly in real time for you to say, wait a minute, that print on the screen said 268, while the audio said first-degree murder is not eligible for parole, while the picture showed supposed convicts going through a turnstile, did I just draw the inference that 268 first-degree murder is not eligible for parole had been released by Michael Dukakis? Well, in fact, viewers did draw that inference from that juxtaposition of what was in print, what they heard, and what they saw. And the producers of the ads could say, we never said that. We put a 268 out from the screen. It was 268 escape. We never said first-degree murders. Well, the audio was saying first-degree murders. Audiences amalgamate those channels in the process they were deceiving themselves. So we've had the capacity to use human susceptibility, in this case, the ability to overwhelm our critical acuity by rapid processing of multiple channels of communication simultaneously. What the social media added and what made us more vulnerable than we have been in the past to social media is the ability to rapidly respond to quick, visually evocative signals by sharing with others, by seeing that all sorts of people like it, and they're liking it in greater numbers. And so I must like it too. Now that puts a social pressure into an equation that wasn't there when you were sitting there drawing the false inferences watching television, because you weren't seeing a whole lot of signals that all my friends like this, everyone likes this, this is incredibly important content. And you also weren't able to share it with someone else, thereby putting your own endorsement behind it. The social media added our capacity to relay content. Maybe if we'd been critically acute and careful, we might not have relayed. At the point at which I relay something to you, it's not the product of the Russian trolls anymore. It's now the product of my endorsement of content, and we've lost track of the source. Social media made it possible, more possible than in the past, to be pseudonymous and to pretend in the process to be someone like me. So we've had groups masquerading as, as something that they're not by putting up names that just sound wonderful. The Political Action Committee for God, Mother, and Apple Pie. Now, that's not an actual political action committee, but we have political action committees and issue advocacy groups that call themselves things like Patriots for America. Well, we don't know exactly who's behind them because our disclosure requirements don't exist to require them to say that. But at least you know they're not like me. They're patriots for America. And you're able to look at that and say, that's advertising. Now, at the point at which I get something in social media, and it's from somebody who seems just like me. The picture profile looks just like me. I've built up an identification across time because I've been following the person. And that person tells me something that's a different kind of relationship. And that could be a Russian troll in St. Petersburg who is pretending to be a housewife in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in the morning and in the afternoon is pretending to be a black activist in Georgia, etc. But what that anonymous signaling through a medium that lets you think that you're being talked to by people like you gives it another capacity to persuade that it didn't have before. So with the human susceptibilities being exploited in a unique way, Yes, to the extent that this was a unique environment. Social media creates some unique constraints on us. But were the human vulnerabilities the same as they've been across time? Yes, it's just harder in this environment 
for us to slow down enough and to be wary enough, particularly when those on the other end of the manipulation are artful, to say, who are you really? Do I really want to share this? Do I really trust you, you know, enough to believe what it is you're saying to me? Thank you. So was this interference that we've, we've been talking about only about getting Trump to, to win the 2016 presidential election or were other down-ballot races influenced as well? Let me parse your question into two parts. We know there was hacked content released at other levels in the U.S. Um, I don't have enough evidence about possible uses to know what, if any, effects were there. And I actually excluded from the book as a result. We can anticipate that will be something that will happen in the future, and we need to be wary about it, which is why I don't want to underplay it. Um, but we know from the Mueller investigation that the Russians had multiple objectives and that those objectives changed across time. So one objective was to sow discord inside the United States and to make the system look bad and look dysfunctional. That's been a Russian objective as long as I've been alive and I'm an elderly woman. So what that the purpose of that kind of divisive rhetoric um, is to just royal turmoil and to make the United States look bad. And often on grounds that are legitimate. There are racial tensions inside the United States that were being exploited and that the Russians have been exploiting at least since the 1960s in the United States. So the, the roiling of discord is clearly a goal, and it's clearly a goal before they are intervening actively against Hillary Clinton, much more so than for Trump, although they are doing both. What the Mueller investigation includes is that they were favoring Sanders and they were favoring Trump. They were presumably favoring Sanders in order to create opposition to Hillary Clinton and make her life more difficult. Um, and they were, they were favoring um, Clinton over Trump, presumably because Putin was very upset about some actions that Obama had taken and Clinton had taken as Secretary of State. So we know from the Mueller investigation they were trying to help elect Trump. They didn't anticipate they were going to, but they were trying to help elect Trump. They were trying to denigrate Hillary Clinton. I believe that's a word used in the Mueller report. But they were also trying to royal discontent. One of the problems I have with the way in which people argue this is they treat them as if they're separable objectives. So before they are actively intervening against Clinton and in favor of Trump, there is the stuff that is trying to royal discontent. So you can say at that point that's clearly an objective. But if you royal discontent in the United States, the president of the United States, the incumbent party, is disadvantaged. So that does, in the context of the election, serve to hurt Hillary Clinton, because Hillary Clinton is running as the heir apparent of Barack Obama. So when people say, no, they were trying to roll discontent as opposed to elect Donald Trump, they were trying to do both. They were trying to do more of the roiling before they actively started to move against Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. But the roiling and the anti-Clinton moves and the pro-Trump moves are compatible, in my judgment, because when you get discontent in our streets, that redounds against the incumbent. The incumbent's Barack Obama. Thank you. So what was the influence, if any, on down-ballot races in the 2016 election? Well, first, there was a breach of information that potentially benefited people in down-ballot races who were Republicans. I don't know enough about it and its potential use, and I don't know of a scholar who does, to give you a good answer to what effect, if any, it had. But when you make available information on voters particularly voters in Florida, where a lot of you know, specific Democratic voter information was made available, you know that that process is going to benefit the Republican candidate. So we can draw the inference that there is some influence. We just don't have that. I know of any publicly available evidence that documents it. There is, however, another down-ballot effect. When you're effectively discrediting the top of the ticket, you're increasing the likelihood that some of what is believed about the top of the ticket 
can infuse your perceptions of those who are part of that party down ballot. We don't know whether that happened, but we know that it's possible that it happened. And again, my focus is on the future. We need to, as scholars, be able to measure those kinds of effects in coming elections should we experience another circumstance like the one in 2016. We just didn't have the instrumentation in hand in order to do that. And I regret that we didn't um, because there may well have been a down-ballot effect. Thank you. Well, thinking about the, the future, the very near future, so 2020 is, is another election, presidential election year. Should we worried about this sort of intervention from Russia or, or elsewhere this time around? We already have an ongoing intervention from Russia. Uh, we know it because Mueller told us it was ongoing when he testified before Congress. Uh, we know it because we've been warned about it by leaders, leaders including those named and appointed by Donald Trump. Uh, and we have every reason to believe, as a result, that the actions that the U.S. has taken to this point have not succeeded in discouraging the Russians. And the reason that is of concern is because there's plausible public information gained by the press that the United States shot into the Russian system a warning shot, a digital warning shot in 2018 by hacking back against the Russian structures to say, basically, we know you're there and we know how to shut you down. Uh, and so given that we have sanctions in place now against those who, according to the Mueller report, were responsible for both the hacking and for the Russian troll operations, the social media operations, and that we expelled people from the United States, we shut down Russian compound space, you wonder what else does the United States have to do in order to discourage this? And there is legislation that is is available. It has not yet gone to the floor. In the Senate in particular, it's, it's very strongly being advocated by one Republican and one Democrat. Uh, Rubio is a Republican from Florida, Van Hollen, who's a Democrat from Maryland, called the Deter Act. It hasn't passed. I hope it will pass. What it basically says is, is if a country meddles in the election, interferes, and then it defines what that means, the troll activity and the hacking activity both would fall under this category. Uh, the United States will throw economic sanctions at that, that country that are horrific and that cannot be taken back by the incumbent president. So you can't get in a situation where a country comes in, benefits one person, they get elected, and then they override that legislation. Now, the likelihood if it were passed by the House and Senate that Donald Trump would sign it is absolutely zero. Nonetheless, if the House and Senate would pass it by a veto-proof majority, we could put in place a protection that I think would discourage not simply Russian interventions, but we also have reason to be concerned about others, Iran, China, among others. Um, and in a global world in which we have hacking coming from all places, um, including Nigeria, you can wonder what would you do to create an effective disincentive? I believe that legislation is an effective disincentive. Two, I'd like to see the nations of the world come together and negotiate a treaty in which they collectively agree that they will stand down. They will not interfere in each other's elections and then specify exactly what that means and agree collectively that if one party does, all others will engage in very strong economic sanctions. And you can specify any other things as well. But at this point, economic sanctions. The reason is that ups your ability to create the disincentive. So where the Deter Act would just you know, create sanctions from the United States, imagine that you had a global agreement. And I wonder if you wouldn't actually have Russia signing into that. Because among the grievances that Vladimir Putin alleges against the United States is that the United States intervenes in elections all over the world. And at one point he says, with a smile, um, in effect, 
Um, wouldn't you expect if that happens that it would happen to you as well? Now, I'm paraphrasing because I don't speak Russian, uh, but that's you know, basically a good transliteration of, of what came to us when it came into English. And what that essentially says is, look, you've been doing it. Why shouldn't we? Well, if this is a response to what is perceived to be U.S. interventions, and we certainly know historically the United States has done more than intervene in some elections in some places, then having a treaty that binds everybody might actually be effective. So going forward, I'd like to at least see those two things on the table, because I don't think we should be violating the sovereignty of other nations, nor should our sovereignty be violated, particularly when it comes to our election of our, our leaders. Thank you. Well, that's a, the substantive questions that I have, but I, I thought, um, would you mind sort of saying a few words about your, your book as well? Because I think that would be of real interest to our listeners. Uh, the book, Cyber War, How Russian Trolls and Hackers Helped Elect a President, has a sub-subtitle. And thank you to Oxford University Press. It's so good to be in England, the home of Oxford University Press, although my editors are in New York. Um, I'm extremely grateful to Oxford. Most of my books are published by Oxford University Press, uh, and the editorial capacities of that press are, are, are just awesome. I'm extraordinarily grateful to all the people who've made those books possible. Uh, the sub-subtitle, and the reason I mention Oxford University Press is because presses don't ever let you have a sub-subtitle. But this has a subtitle. It's what we, we uh, do, can, and can't know. There's a lot that we can't know about the effects of these kinds of interventions because they're extraordinarily difficult to study. Um, it's difficult to disentangle the effects of the troll messages from the Trump messages. Largely, the troll messages were duplicating the Trump messages. That is, they were taking things that were in the right-wing ecosphere and they were simply giving them more traction. Well, if as a scholar on my survey instruments, I am tracking the message I can't track the difference between that message coming from the Trump campaign, a conservative ecosystem, or the trolls. So it makes it very difficult to say what part of that effect is the troll effect and what part of that is the effect of everything else. They did up the amount, I can tell you that. But did that upping of the amount make a difference? I've got to be able to calibrate it and get it back to the trolls. And that's my second problem. We didn't know during 2016. The Obama White House didn't know. As far as I know, the country was unaware, with the exception of a couple of scholars who seemed to think something was wrong. I was not among them. That the trolls were even out there. They were doing a sufficiently good job mimicking what was there that they were undetectable. Now, that tells you something. The Russian troll site called Blacktivist had more interactions than did Black Lives Matter's site. The site of the Russians, the fake Russian site, the troll site, called at 10 underscore GOP, 10 stands for Tennessee, at 10 underscore GOP, GOP, Republican Party, grand old party, had more interactions than did the Tennessee Republican Party. But it looked like the Tennessee Republican Party. It looked like a Black Lives Matter-like site. It was very difficult to say it was something else. So if we want to study it in real time, particularly on the troll front, I'd have to be able to know where it is, what it is, and then I'd be able to parse it out and its effect out from what else is there, that's extremely difficult to do. Secondly, if you think that the three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, made the difference, that actually the effect is in those three states, then you'd have to have very large surveys in those three states. Very close election, the margin of error is going to be greater in the survey than the closeness of the election. You're not going to be able to draw the inference. You're not going to be able to look at the subpopulations that mobilized and demobilized First, because you're within the margin of error on the survey. You can't get a population that's large enough to get reliable enough to draw the inference. But secondly, it's extremely difficult to find out who did not vote and did vote and why they did and did not vote. 
I can tell you what, whether they voted or not. I can't tell you why they did or did not. So if I want to attribute that to demobilizing rhetoric, I now have a problem, which is there are all sorts of other reasons you might not vote. There are all sorts of other reasons you might vote. So how do I get that under control becomes an additional problem. The reason I have a sub-sub-subtitle is there are some things it's going to be very difficult to know going forward. But I wanted to flag them for scholars so that we could think about how we might get to them in the future. In a part, because if we can get to them in the future, it means somebody's been able to flag them and maybe we can introduce kinds of rhetoric that are counteractive. Fantastic. Thanks so much for speaking to us. You're welcome. It's good to be with you. Professor Kathleen Jemison is the Elizabeth Ware Packard Professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania and Director of its Annenberg Public Policy Center. So that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Check out this feed for the recording of Professor Jemison's lecture at our event, Russian Hackers, Trolls, and Hashtag Democracy RIP. Thanks to Professor Kathleen Jemison for joining me in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman. The Ballpark podcast is supported by the Phelan family. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and like lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us your feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us, and tell your friends about us. And here's the legal bit. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.